welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hey, please go check out Counterpunch Plus. That is the subscriber section on the website. You can get access to exclusive content that you'll find only there, nowhere else. We provide a lot of different ideas, different perspectives, different authors from a variety of um, areas of the left. If you want to hear these uh, different perspectives and you want to get a chance to have insights that you might not find anywhere else, please get that Counterpunch Plus subscription. That is how you support our work and support independent media. And speaking of independent media, we of course have our favorites and one of them is with us today. Someone whose work I know you're already supporting and if you're not, you will be soon. It is Kim Kelly. Kim is with us. She is a freelance journalist, a labor reporter and an organizer. Uh, Her work has appeared in many different publications, The New Republic, Washington Post, Esquire, Baffler, a whole bunch of others. You can find her on Twitter at Grim Kim. And of course, she is the author of the brand new book that you'll all run out and get copies of, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Kim Kelly, welcome to Counterpunch. Thank you so much for having me. That was a heck of an intro. Well, I try to rattle it off as quickly as I can. So uh, thank you. All right, let's um, let's jump into our conversation. It is very, very hot. I'm sitting here and sweating. Luckily, no one can see that. So Talk, talk to me a little bit about yourself, Kim. The work that you do is top notch. Anybody who doesn't know your work is, of course, furiously Googling and finding it. But tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got into doing the work that you do. Yeah, you know, I don't know that there is a, a typical route that one might take to become a labor journalist. I mean, there's only, what, like a dozen of us in the country. So <laughs> uh, whatever the typical route is, I certainly didn't take it. Um, Because I spent most of my life and career in the music business, in the heavy metal world, Um, writing and touring and selling T-shirts and booking shows and working for record labels. Like my whole life was organized around riffs and amplifiers and, you know, various satanic musical endeavors. And so it never really occurred to me that the labor movement or unions or anything of that nature would be kind of in the cards for me because it just didn't. I didn't think there was, you know, a, a heavy metal local 666 that I could join. Um, even if I was from a union family of steel workers and construction workers and teachers, you know, I knew unions were a good thing, but I never thought it'd be something I'd experience for myself until I was working at Vice in 2015 as the heavy metal editor there. And we organized and I jumped in head first and I was in every meeting and on every committee, every bargaining session. I joked to somebody the other day that labor became my new favorite band. And I spent so much time just learning more about labor's history and talking to labor lawyers and organizers and just kind of immersing myself in this world that had made my life so much better and my coworkers' life so much better that, you know, that, that seeped into the work I was doing as a writer. You know, I was already freelancing at Vice because they paid us nothing. So I was already used to, to hustling a little bit on the side. But when I started pitching around labor stories, I was lucky enough to get a little bit of attention for doing that because the primary place I was doing that was in Teen Vogue. And this was in 2017, you know, before Teen Vogue became the vanguard of the revolution, you know, pre-guillotine Vogue. So people weren't necessarily expecting that kind of coverage to pop up in that publication, but it did. And they gave me a column. And from there, I started writing for some other places because I felt like I'd finally built up enough 
like clips and credibility and I guess courage to cover labor and other avenues. And by the time I got laid off from Vice alongside 200 other people in one day, shout out to digital media, I decided, okay, I'm going to try and do this. I'm going to try and be a labor reporter full-time freelance. And about a year later is when we sold the proposal for Fight Like Hell. So I guess it worked out. Well, it certainly did. So let's talk a little bit about Fight Like Hell. What was the genesis of this book? Was it just generally all of the ideas that had been percolating in your mind? Was it uh, one particular experience that crystallized the need for this book? Let's talk a little bit about this because I guess the, the what I really want to get at is, you know, this isn't the first book that's ever been written on labor history in the United States, but it's obviously very different. It's qualitatively different from many others that came before it. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the genesis of the book and how it's different from those that came before it? Yeah, that was, I mean, you're right. There are millions, if not, well, probably hundreds, dozens, lots of other labor books out there. And I feel like at this point, I've read most of them. And I do think my book is a little bit different. Because a lot of the most interesting stories, interesting research you find in uh, more academic publications, like in journals and academic presses, and that's not necessarily as accessible to the general public. You know, you're not going to be able to walk into Barnes and Noble and pick up some of these these very important works. And I wanted to write something that would be accessible to everybody, like to any worker who was who wanted something to read on their lunch break or on the bus. That was my audience. That's who I was writing for because that's, I mean, that's me. You know, I didn't, I don't have any degrees. I don't have an academic background, but I have a deep interest and love for this history and a great passion for it. And I hope that comes through in my work. And that was really the animating force behind writing this book, writing Fight Like Hell. You know, I'd already been kind of stitching together this, this style, I suppose, of, uh, writing about current labor events with a very historical focus, like tying it all together, showing how where we are right now goes back to something we did before. Like I was doing that in my columns and focusing specifically on stories of marginalized workers, people of marginalized identities and backgrounds, doing some of the hardest jobs, the dirtiest jobs, the least recognized jobs. And when I got a chance to write a whole book, I was like, okay, cool. Now I can... I have more than 1400 words to get into this. I can I can write as much as I want and spend time researching and interviewing and digging into these stories that I knew were out there but you know, never really had a place to to dive into as as deeply as I wanted to. And so when I put the book together, I just sort of saw it as a continuation of the work I was already doing at Teen Vogue and the other work I was doing, but just sort of the I don't know, like the biggest, boldest, most ambitious version of that. And I think that probably comes through. Like if you've read my stuff in Teen Vogue specifically, and then you pick up this book, I think you'll be like, oh, okay, that that tracks. Like, of course, this is the book she wrote. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to characterize it in this way, but there is a, you know, Howard Zinn-like people's history element to the way that you've written this book, because there are plenty of books, as you noted, that are about U.S. labor, U.S. labor history that might be deep dives into a particular strike, auto workers, the 1930s, or whatever it might be. But this book is something of a survey, and it's a it's something like a survey from below, a sort of a grassroots version of labor history, as opposed to some of the more top-down versions we've gotten in the past. Yeah, like I didn't have any real interest in getting into, you know, like talking like 
the 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 boring stuff <laughs> which to me is like sort of power struggles in various unions or the bureaucratic sides of things or even the more well-known parts of labor history like of course i talk about the triangle factory fire and about auto workers and about mill workers like there there are pieces and people in this book that folks will recognize but i tried really hard to even when i was talking about somebody recognizable to try and see okay well who is standing next to them or behind them like who else was part of that story and um yeah it, it's it's kind of funny but the initial subtitle i wanted to call it and i it's it was probably a little unwieldy i'll give it to him but i wanted to call it like a marginalized people's history of labor in the u.s or some, some like that people's history. That was the vibe I was thinking of. And we ended up with the untold history because the marketing department was like, you should do that. And I was like, well, I don't know. Okay. And <laughs> going back, I probably would have pushed a little harder to have a different subtitle because I know like the untold history uh, concept, like that's like kind of problematic. And I, I learned a lot about why that was, but, um, but whatever, you know, it's, it's, this history is untold in that it's unknown to a lot of people, not to everyone, not the people who have studied it, of course, but not everyone has studied these histories or has had access to them or even knows where to look. And I wanted to make it easy because people probably aren't going to go through all the trouble of picking up like every good labor book possible around them and trying to pick out the pieces that resonate with them. Like I wanted to write a book that could be accessible to every type of person, every type of worker. I tried really hard to make sure there were a lot of different stories and people and identities uh, represented because there are plenty of labor books about the very worthy and important struggles of, you know, the, the white guys in hard hats that tend to define the popular imagination when it comes to labor, but everyone else has been part of this too and has done some really cool things too. And they deserve just as much attention, if not more. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking it just as I was reading through the book, I was thinking about a friend of this show and friend of Counterpunch uh, historian Marcus Redeker and his idea of history, yes. history from below, as he calls it, you know, writing history with with the perspective of those, quote unquote, at the bottom, you know, and, and I kept coming back to Marcus's phrasing of that when I was reading your book, Kim, because it's almost like America's labor history from below. Oh, I love that. And he, he's the one who, he wrote that great book on Benjamin Lay, right? Exactly. Yeah, I wrote about Benjamin in my book because that's exactly the kind of person that I think people interested in labor history need to hear about because labor history isn't just unions or people leading strikes. It is so many other, like, like anything to do with work, whether it's sex work, incarcerated workers, people who are organizing outside of the traditional union structure, like that is all just as valid and just as important. And in some ways has been much more radical and militant and necessary than what has been happening in some of these more, you know, ponderous, stymied, red taped up institutions, like wherever a worker is doing something cool, that's labor history. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about recent, some recent labor history. Now, I understand that pretty much everybody listening to us already probably has some, you know, some grounding in 
uh, neoliberalism, the Reagan era, what it did to organize labor, et cetera. But I just wanted to ask you from a historical perspective, having written this book and looked at the various periods and the evolution of labor, especially in the United States, can you talk a little bit about the period, uh, say, from Reagan's uh, assuming power up until, well, relatively recently and what that process, I mean, not, I guess not talking about it from a macro perspective, but maybe some of the micro examples that you might go into that characterize this period that we seem to be finally coming out of. Yeah. I mean, I think most people listening will know about how Ronald Reagan broke the PACO strike and brought organized labor to its knees and was just a real nasty piece of work when it came to dealing with workers and the working class in general I think one of the biggest repercussions of what he did in breaking that strike that we've seen kind of hobble uh, organized labor for decades after is sort of forcing that shift in which replacement workers and breaking strikes and kind of just being actively antagonistic against striking workers and against unions, that became so much the norm and it became such a big part of like the Republican platform like, I'm not sure how much I can swear, so I won't, but just, you know, basically the, the go to hell program that they have engineered for many, many years since. And of course that led to, you know, this plague of right to work legislation that we're still dealing with, like that suppressed the minimum wage is suppressed various types of workers' rights advances that we could have gotten. I mean, you can't blame everything on the Republicans because the Democrats have been in power for a really long time too they're in power now and i don't know how much that's helped any of us <laughs> but um yeah the the less i have to think about the two-party uh political state the better so just in terms of what organized labor had to deal with i mean that it's been really hard we've been on the back foot for a really long time like reagan really helped start that downward trend in a way but there have been other factors too Union density is still really low, even with people being really excited about it and trying to do something about it in a big way right now. The numbers still ain't great. I mean, we have so much work to do to kind of get back to that prior militancy and radicalism that animated the movement for decades and centuries prior to the 80s. I mean, it's it's fun seeing people talk about general strikes on Twitter and on Instagram, but I don't think very many people know about all the general strikes that happened before and the conditions it took to get to that point and what happened and what we won and what we lost. Like, I don't know, as a, as a history nerd, I'm very interested in seeing what happens in the next few years and months and whatever. But I always kind of have in the back of my head, like, okay, we've been here before and we saw how that went. So what lessons are we taking? Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, Kim, it's not an accident that you uh, rose to some notoriety in the last few years, because it is in the last few years that we're beginning to see, I guess, what you might call a new wave of labor organizing. So just from your perspective, having covered it these last several years, how would you describe the current wave of organizing? And is it unique? And if so, how is it unique as opposed to previous waves? You know, the the funny thing is that the people leading the charge right now are the same people who have always led the charge. I think that they're finally just being acknowledged and it, there's a greater understanding 
that they are in fact the people leading the charge like it's younger workers black and brown workers queer and trans workers workers who don't who either haven't gone to college or went through college or saddled with massive amounts of student debt like people who are already starting off disadvantaged and are like okay we're out in the labor market now we have to work to survive that's the system we're under but why can't things be a little bit better why can't we organize i mean we have people who came of age during the you know post occupy post bernie running for president we are the one percent not me us like that that whole sort of shift towards collective thinking and of towards well towards socialism towards progressivism whatever you want to say whatever is animating younger people to try and fix this burning world they've inherited uh, i mean the the conditions are a little different now because they're uh worse in a lot of ways than they were in the 60s or the 30s or the 1910s but it's always been younger marginalized people who have pushed the hardest and fought the most to push progress forward i mean even if you think during the civil rights movement, which is, I think, one of those moments that people like to hold up as these massive transformative movements, which, of course, it is. So many of those folks leading the charge were like in their 20s. Like they were these are not old men and women. These are kids. And that's who we're seeing leading the charge today. It's kind of a everything old is new again moment. And I just think we finally have a moment in the, the press and the media where people more people are equipped to recognize and interrogate and show that like, yeah, of course, Chris Smalls is one of the most effective union leaders we've seen in a generation because he's part of that tradition of working class, radical black men leading other folks to victory in, in organizing spaces in, in labor spaces. Like we had Ben Fletcher in Philadelphia in 1910 doing the same thing that Chris Smalls is doing in Staten Island right now. Like, labor history is absolutely bursting with figures like this and with movements and people who have revolutionized their moments and their eras and and their workplaces and it's just so cool to see it happening right now and actually being documented in a way that kind of honors the actual identities of the people who are leading it yeah that really does segue to my next question which is related to that and that's the idea of um who it is that is organizing, not just not just what type of person uh, or what type of groups of people, but what types of industries are beginning to organize. And I think it reflects to some degree, and I want to get your comment on this, the, the transformed nature of our economy that we have in our minds this idea that every you know militant union uh, action has to be like Harlan County, USA or something, you know, coal miners and hard hats or whatever. But you know, we have a, a, an economy that is much more service oriented these days, a consumption driven economy. And the fact that we're seeing it in places like Starbucks, which is ubiquitous, or Amazon, which is also ubiquitous, I think reflects something about the nature of our economy today. Yeah. And I mean, lest we forget, there are a thousand coal miners in rural Alabama who have been on strike for over a year. And they are still militant. They are still holding the line. Like folks who are in these traditional industries that do have a long history of being unionized, like they're still here too. Like the Teamsters are always on strike somewhere in America. <laughs> but you're right in that, you know, the nature of work itself has shifted. And then I think the nature of the way we think about work and about the value of our labor and of our lives has shifted, especially in the past couple of years 
as we've continued to try and live through this horrible pandemic and as the most vulnerable workers have been impacted the most. I mean, you talk about the service industry and retail and in healthcare, people on the front lines of this horrible <laughs> continuing tragedy, of course, they're, they're going to want to, you know, make the most of the time they have and, uh, you know, the, the opportunity they have to make changes. I mean, of course, it's important that Starbucks is organizing and Amazon is organizing. We're also seeing so much interest and enthusiasm in these kind of so-called white collar spaces that I think, you know, a few years ago would have, would have been not unthinkable, certainly, but just not, it's a little unexpected that, you know, workers in the video game industry, uh, in digital media, in lots of nonprofits, there have been a lot of really interesting developments in the reproduct- reproductive health space with Planned Parenthood workers and other clinic clinic workers unionizing. I mean, even medieval times as unionizing. Like, this is very much, it's not my dad's labor movement anymore. I've got to fight feudalism on all fronts. Yeah, literally. In medieval, in medieval dining space. Yeah, like what is it? The, the, the ward of the palaces, peace to the cottages. I mean. <laughs> you got it, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, but that then leads us to the other question. You actually kind of hinted at this in one of your earlier uh, comments, and I think it bears repeating the stereotype, the image in our minds or in the minds of many people of what a quote unquote worker is, right? Mm. This came up over and over again during the uh, 2016 or in the post 2016 election period when everyone's like, well, Trump won on the back of workers in the Midwest and workers are this. And it's like, well, do you think that, you know, the Filipino American nurse is not a worker? Do you think the Mexican laborer is not a worker? So in other words, the nature of how we think about who a worker is has also undergone something of a transformation. Can you talk a little bit about oh, that? Oh, yeah. This stuff drives me bonkers. And I mean, even just sticking to the uh, those traditional industries, right? Like you want to talk about auto workers and factory workers in the Midwest. Well, okay, what about the Black and Arab auto workers in the 60s and 70s who organized for political and labor gain? Like, what about the, you know, queer and trans steel workers in Indiana that Anne Belay wrote about in her book, Steel Pride? Like, even just sticking to these traditional industries, just acting as though the only people doing any work are white guys like my dad who wear a hard hat and have a lot of bad opinions. Like that's just absolutely shrinking the, it's just just a fundamental misunderstanding of who the working class is. And even now I think I've had people ask me this at book readings, even saying like, you know, Oh, well most working class people are just, you know, the blue collar white guys. How do you reach them? It's like, well, that's not my job. (laughs) And also that is not what the entirety of the working class looks like. The working class is like black and brown and indigenous and queer and trans and disabled and Asian and Latino and immigrant and like in an outside prison. Like it's, it it just shows how little people understand what the idea of work and the working class and who's done what and whose labor counts. I think there's this sort of uh, lionization and almost romanticization of like the factory worker, the auto worker, the the blue collar, you know, drives a Chevy, lives in the suburbs, votes Republican kind of guy, this avatar that both the major political parties want to claim as their own. But 
what about everybody else? Oh, because caring about everybody else means you have to care about more of the issues that impact everybody else. If you want to say you care about workers' issues, that means you have to care about racism and xenophobia and homophobia and transphobia, misogyny, sexual harassment, like disability justice. Like if you acknowledge that these other workers exist and are in fact an incredibly important part of like the entire fabric of the working class, that means you have to care about the things that impact them. And that takes a lot more effort and a lot more empathy and just a lot more giving a, giving a damn. And there are a lot of people in power, whether it's in media or in politics, who simply do not want to bother. So it's so much easier to say people like my dad with his hard hat and his bad opinions about people from different countries represents the entirety of the working class. Right. And it also raises the question, and I mean, we could spend an entire hour uh, or longer just talking about this issue, but uh, it does raise the question of even though the various elements of the working class are divided in a lot of ways, issues of labor often do have a way of cutting across some of those divisions and even uh, sometimes uniting people that might otherwise never unite on any other issue. So can you speak a little bit to that? And I'm not saying that you know labor allows us to excuse reactionary attitudes or whatever, but sometimes it does give us a window into being able to communicate with people that many other walks of life we might not be able to communicate with oh yeah labor is what well, work specifically it has that kind of edge and that is one of the few almost entirely universal experiences right almost everybody has had a job or has a job or will have a job and chances are some parts of that job sucked <laughs> like they probably had a bad boss they probably didn't get paid enough there was no one has like a perfect rosy tiptoe through the tulips experience at work every single day. That's just not how work works. Um, And so when you're able, when you're, you're talking to different groups of people that seem like they have very different perspectives, very different goals and values and everything about them is different. But then you find that common ground of talking about, okay, well, what about your job? What about your boss? Could you make things better? How would working together assist us here like it's it's something that i've seen specifically in my own work covering uh this coal miner strike in alabama where i showed up and i could tell you know it's 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 not any kind of secret a lot of the folks involved are more conservative very christian Uh, a lot of people vote for trump this that and the other uh we had very different viewpoints when it came to politics and, and some different experiences when it came to to culture and just general social group but I want them to win their strike and they want to win their strike. And they saw that I kept showing up and I kept listening and sure I would push back or I'd argue a little bit when it, you know, when that was necessary, but we were able to just kind of value one another and see, okay, we are on the same side. And in as much as it's us against the bosses, against the corporate elite, against the oligarchs and the government, like that is, that is a powerful bond to build. And I feel like once we get to a point where everyone is safe and respected and paid decent and has decent benefits and is okay at work, then we can spend a little bit more time fighting out all of the other issues that are still important, but you know, aren't quite as immediate as can you feed your kids? Can you walk out? Can you get home? Like, <laughs> are you dying of black lung? Like there, there's so many, uh, I guess, pressing issues that labor 
and organizing that space addresses. And I think people gravitate towards that. And I think they also, I think labor also creates kind of a potentially transformative space for people that do start out in one political position, we'll say conservative Republican in this case, and then through seeing, okay, who supported our strike, who supported our union, who showed up for us and who ignored us. You know, there are people that I met in the beginning of that strike who are, you know, full on conservative Republicans. Now they're out here taking meetings with Bernie Sanders and posting Eugene Debs quotes on Twitter. Like (laughs) seeing who cared, who showed up and who gave a damn about their fight totally shook up the perspectives that some of these folks had on politics and, you know, their, their status as workers. And I think there's a lesson there that people who make a lot more money than I do and spend a lot more time than I do thinking about politics could take when it comes to, Oh, what do we do about all these people that disagree with us? Well, have you tried talking to them like people? (laughs) I want to get your comment on the uh, generational uh, divides here, because one of the things, and this is very simplistic, obviously it would require nuance and fleshing out further. But um, one of the things that you notice is that the, 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 let's call them the baby boomer generation essentially grew up with unions as a fixture in society. I mean, unions were strong leading out of the 1940s and 50s and into the 60s and even into the 70s until the union busting really took hold. And so for, I think, a lot of older people that I've spoken with, there's less of a a understanding of what life without a union would look like, whereas Mm. younger workers, especially those that are, you know, in their 20s now, I mean, their entire working life has been, you know, non-unionized, low wages, not a living wage, etc. So I'm just wondering if you could give your sense of some of these generational divides. And is that, in your view, one of the major drivers of the union activism among young people we're seeing now? Yeah, that's really interesting to think about because you're right. There are whole generations of people in this country who benefited from unions, who grew up and lived their working lives through having unions as just sort of this given, like as part of the fabric of being a worker. You don't even need to think about it. You don't even need to think about it. The union's just there. Yeah, honestly, that's what my family's like because they're not (laughs) progressive in any, uh, any sense of the word, but my whole family is union. And that was just part of the deal. Like you work construction, you work at a steel mill, well, you're a teacher, like, of course you have a union and it makes things a little bit better. makes things a little easier. If you got to go on strike, you go on strike. You know, if you need health insurance, the union's got your back. That was how I grew up thinking of unions. It's like, oh, that's, that's good. That is a good thing to have, but you need to have a real job to be a part of a union. And I've never had a real job. You know, I've always been a writer and a roadie and just the sort of, this feral creature doing my best to get along. And I think maybe a lot of folks, especially in this younger cohort, this newer cohort, maybe they've been made to feel like their jobs aren't real either. You know, you just work at Starbucks, you just work retail, you just work for some white collar nonprofit firm. Like, I think that it comes down to the idea of what jobs count and what jobs don't count. And I think that that is, that's something that's shifting. And I think your perspective on that depends a whole lot on your own experience and your own kind of social and cultural and political positioning. But it is really cool to see a lot of people in these jobs and industries and professions that aren't supposed to count being like, okay, well, we're going to make them count. We're going to organize. Like there's nothing, there's no reason not to, if anything, there's every reason in the world that we should be organizing. 
I think once people realize that they have the option to organize and to join a union, it's kind of invariable or inevitable that people will because unions are a good thing. It's even with all the negative propaganda and lack of understanding education around them. Like it's once you learn what a union is, it sounds pretty good, you know, (laughs) like getting over that first hurdle of people not understanding what they are or having a lack of interest. It's a pretty easy sell. You know, and I think that's something we're seeing now. A whole new generation of workers woke up. Well, they didn't wake up. They just kind of realized on mass, like, oh, we actually have some options here. All right, let's exercise them. Well, and there's something uh, beautifully poetic and dialectical about uh, capitalists taking 40 years to create a low wage economy. And then once that low wage economy is fully entrenched, those workers at low wages are going to unionize and fight back. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> You know, sort of like the Marx uh, talking about the capitalists will uh, create the tools with which they'll be hung. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, you know, we've we've seen uh, we've seen a couple of guillotines out of these protests, and I mean, <laughs> Jeff Bezos isn't building anything. I'm sure that man's never swung a hammer in his life. So, Kim, as we approach the end of our conversation, I want to ask you a, a, a kind of a big question here, but you take it in whatever direction you'd like. What about other issues? What about climate change? How can we be spending all this time talking about labor labor issues and strikes at the workplace when we know that the planet is hurtling towards oblivion? Talk to me a little bit about the intersectional nature of labor organizing, workers, and uh, climate change and understanding and recognizing climate reality in this uh, day and age. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are thinking about that and are hopefully and certainly understanding the intersections there. Because I mean, I just finished writing, reporting a new piece for Teen Vogue about about that, about how the climate crisis is impacting workers who spend their time outside working on roofs or in fields or in construction sites. Like the people I talked to were like, look, <laughs> this is this is getting worse. This is taking a toll. One of them, actually, a union carpenter named Zoe, I interviewed from Boston. She was saying, you know, I've been thinking about this kind of in, in multiple ways because, yeah, like it's really hot in my job and it's really hard but also my job itself depends on materials that come from the earth like what happens when the materials we use to make steel and rebar and concrete what happens when they're not there what happens to our jobs like she said something that stuck with me she's like i want to help build this world not just take from it and i think there's a lot of recognition and kind of conversation around that like we see the blue green alliance we see uh like there's a new Uh, coalition in texas that's kind of a labor climate coalition there are people working on this there are people drawing those connections and making them clear and i think even projects like uh, gen z for change who have you know caused uh caused all those ruckuses on twitter and targeting uh you know like uh, i think kroger and amazon and whatnot's job listings for scabs they have a whole section on climate activism too like i think that the two issues are pretty deeply intertwined in a way that it's pretty inextricable. I mean, I, my, my partner is a, he works on a farm outside and he comes home covered in sweat and about to pass out every day. And I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is so personal. This is so unavoidable, inescapable for all of us. Maybe some people can pretend it's not happening, but I can't. And a whole lot of people don't have the luxury to pretend that the world isn't on fire and it isn't getting worse every single day. And I think labor has a lot of power to be at the forefront 
of, uh, of like trying to help, of trying to be useful, of not clinging to the fossil fuel jobs that we think are going to save us and instead really investing and advocating for renewable energy jobs. Even at the UMWA, United Mine Works of America convention in June that I was at uh, last month, they're saying like, yeah, like we, and of course they have a pretty vested interest in um, in fossil fuels continuing to be a thing. But even they're saying up on the stage, like we, look, we need to start organizing other types of workers, including workers in renewable energy. And I thought that was a big step because when you've got the mine workers saying, okay, well, clearly we got to broaden things a little bit. We got to be smart about this. That's significant. I think labor has, there are a lot of things that labor, organized labor and regular workers could do. It just takes time and energy and motivation. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know how much our, our labor leaders are prepared for this crisis the same way I'm certain our political leaders are not and have shown over and over again that they do not care. But rank and file workers care about these things and we're the people that do everything anyway. So hopefully more people keep making those connections and keep talking across, you know, across issues and realizing that we're all kind of in this together. There's really only one issue, and that is survival and liberation. Well, and just from a practical perspective, I mean, who's going to fix the roads that buckle because it's hot? Who's going who's gonna to install the high-speed rails? Who's going to do the work required to retrofit buildings to be energy efficient or a million other uh, things that you might think of that are going to be necessary yeah. uh, developments for human civilization to continue? And all of that's going to have to be done by workers. It's not going to be investors. It's going to be workers building. Yeah. And if labor was as smart as we think we are, we would be all in on being like, look at all of these jobs and all these good union jobs that we could throw our weight behind while also making the planet a little less terrible. Like I'm, I'm not a, as well versed in, in the climate world as a whole lot of other people because it's really depressing. But labor really has a chance here to be at the forefront. And I really, really hope that <laughs> we don't squander it. And the last question I just want to ask you before you go, um, can you speak a little bit to anybody who might be listening uh, for uh, people who might be interested in doing some of this kind of work? You sort of backed your way into it. What <laughs> advice would you give to anybody interested in writing about these issues, becoming active on these issues or what have you? Yeah, I mean, well, first, organize your workplace, right? That's where you learn all the most important things, but also just read a lot and talk to people. It sounds very basic, but it is very important. I mean, I've read, I'm, I'm a voracious reader anyway, but the amount of labor history books I've read are pretty, I've got, I've read a lot of books and that's really helped kind of just deepen my understanding and knowledge of labor history and, and be able to draw those connections to our present. Like understanding where we are now takes understanding where we came from because it's all, everything builds on everything else. And also just talking to people, like if you want to to be a reporter, if you want to be an effective organizer, if you want to just be part, be in the mix, like you got to be good at talking to people and more so you have to be good at listening. And especially when you go into a conversation as a reporter, as an organizer being like, okay, I am not the most important person here. Whatever this person is telling me, whatever they're going through, whatever they're dealing with, that's the focus. That's what I want to hear about. I want to show them I respect them. I appreciate their time. I'm trustworthy. 
I think like social skills are a really important part of all this work and developing those and developing, you know, comfort with talking to people who might even be different from you. I think that it's, it's, I don't, I don't know how you make yourself less awkward, but I would recommend trying because I used to be really shy and quiet, but you can't be really shy and quiet when you want to be a labor reporter and organizer. You got to get good at talking to people because they're the, they're the experts, right? Like, Nothing happens unless a worker decides to talk to you and you got to figure out a way to make them feel as comfortable and safe talking to you as you can. Thank you to Kim Kelly for coming and chatting with us at Counterpunch. Again, Kim's work is top notch. You should follow it everywhere it appears. You can follow Kim on Twitter at Grim Kim. Uh, her work is all over the place, and I recommend you do what you got to do to follow that. And of course, get yourself a copy of the book Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, a huge contribution from Kim. Thank you so much for coming and chatting with us, Kim. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a great conversation and you're way too kind about my work. Well, that's not necessarily true. But listeners, <laughs> thank you as always for the continued support and we will chat again next time.